This is a Federal News Network podcast. Few services to the public can be as troublesome as agency contact centers. Just ask the IRS. Yet as long as people have phones, they're going to want telephone service. Technology consultants at Deloitte studied contact centers and came up with a model for what they call the contact center of the future. Here with what that might look like, Deloitte Consulting Principal Mark Mancher. Mr. Mancher, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Hope you're having a great day today. Yes, I haven't had to call anyone for telephone service yet, so that makes a good day in my estimation. But let's start at the beginning. You make a distinction between call centers and contact centers. Let's talk about the state of the industry. And I think it's important to note that when is the last time you or someone you know say, I had a great interaction today with a federal agency or department. We don't usually hear that coming from the contact center space. What we usually hear is disappointment or that service needs were not met. And what we're seeing in the space overall is that this is really because the infrastructure of our contact centers is crumbling. So when we look at the contact center space, right, there's been a lot of procurements over the last couple of years for shiny new apps and software products. But underneath it, the existing infrastructure is old. So let me give you a quick example here. Today, we have our phones, our iOS, our Android phones, and all kinds of new apps are out there in the marketplace. But if we don't have a newer version, if our phones are three to five years old, we can't use the digital experience promised by these. And that digital experience can include things like text or chat or voice or moving between channels and giving someone the service where they want it, how they want it, at the time they want it. What we can just give them is the way we've always done it. So what we're really seeing when we talk about the future is that the infrastructure itself is crumbling in our contact centers. And that infrastructure is called telephony. Yeah. Contact centers are designed, I guess, around originally around telephone service and information was fed up to people as they were on the phone. But what is the missing piece of infrastructure then? I mean, anything can go over the same wire. So when you say infrastructure, what do you specifically mean? Sure. So let's talk about the telephony infrastructure. So when we think about interactions today, our citizens want to be served where, when, and how. And that can be in text, that can be in chat, or that can be via voice. And so in order to get that interaction and to move between the different channels, what you need is an underlying telephony infrastructure that enables that. So let's say you start on a website and then you want to go to chat and then you need to go talk to an agent to resolve something. If the infrastructure can't move you between the different channels, that's called omni-channel, then what you're stuck with is you're on a website, let me look up a phone number and then you try dialing it or maybe you can't find that phone number. The interaction itself and the underlying telephony infrastructure should enable someone to move between those points seamlessly and that's where we're broken. So a contact center then has unified communications, I think is the word for it. Sounds like agencies need to get onto the EIS contract if they're going to be able to do this. That's a great point. The EIS contract is part of the vision on how to do that. Part of the problem, though, when you mention EIS or other solicitations, is that what we're seeing is that the solicitations are looking at the past, not the future. Let me give you an example here. They're saying things like, show me where you did this over the last three to five years, not show me where your design is and in the future, how you're going to innovate. Just think about when we buy a car, Tom, do we go into the dealership and say, 
show me the technology from three to five years ago. No, we say, show me what's new now and how that is going to manifest itself into what I purchased. Our procurements need to be shifted. All right. And the contact centers are populated by people. And it seems like they have to have a different set of training, different set of skills to be able to be omni-channel while they're working with a given client or constituent. So it's a mix of people and AI in the contact centers today. A lot of what we can do is via speech. We can do that inside an IVR. There's often a term that's misused in the industry, which is called IVR deflection. Let's lower costs and get people out of the IVR. That way we don't talk to them. How about we service people in the IVR so they can receive the service they need? Or how about in the IVR, we can text them a link like we do commercially and someone can be serviced so they never have to receive the voice, you know, which is actually slower and often less service driven than the automated interaction. So yes, training is very important. What we have to understand is how do we use the AI that is available today in an omni-channel experience to deliver service to citizens? We're speaking with Mark Mancher. He's a principal at Deloitte Consulting and an expert on the contact center. And you did a pretty detailed study of this. Are there any industrial or commercial examples you can point to that exemplify this? Well, sure. Just think, I don't want to name companies necessarily, but just think if you buy something online in a major retailer, that's a web-based presence. If you have an issue with your interaction, a chat pops up on your device. And from that chat, you can then interact. And often that's AI. Sometimes that's a person. You're then given a link to something that can solve your problem. And then a return or replacement can happen. And that is all within seconds, not minutes. And you get the service where you want it, how you want it, and at the time that you need it, whether it's in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night. So someone could then be on the phone on speaker, say, I'm just trying to imagine this, on their handset, on a smartphone. And with modern phones, as you point out, you can do omni-channel. And so the phone call is not broken. They could get a link. They could resolve the issue with that link while the person is on the phone and say, you all set. Okay, good. You're done. Goodbye. And everybody's happy. Well, depending upon how you want to interact with the uh, contact center, you may not ever need that voice. You could start it in a chat on your device and you could end it on a chat on your device and you never need to get to an agent because everything has manifested itself for you in that device. If you do need to get to one, this is the important interaction piece. All the data from your prior interactions through the telephony needs to get to the agent so that I don't have to ask you, who are you? What do you want? If they can see the interaction from the past, they can immediately get to what you need and serve you. Right. I guess the postulate that it has to start out with a phone call, that's the thing we got to get past in the first place. Absolutely. It doesn't have to start with a phone call. And often it's not the best way to start it. If we can start it in a different channel, we can use the phone as either the last resort or perhaps someone needs to use voice because of a disability or something else. We can have that available for different populations, but we should be able to have someone again receive service when they want it, how they want it, and at the time you know, and place they want it. By the way, are there any government agencies that are already there or getting there that are a good model? I haven't seen one yet, Tom, honestly. <laughs> what I've seen is a lot of great conversation. Let me give you a real example from this morning. We are looking at a solicitation. I'm not going to name the agency. Looking at innovation. And I asked my team about innovation. And they said, Mark, have you read question XYZ? And I'm like, well, I went through the q and I'm going to read you exactly what the Q&A said. 
the vendor, it wasn't my firm, it said, can we bring an innovative solution? Answer from the government, no, just bid the requirement. <laughs> Real story from this morning, that to me does not bid innovation into the future that keeps us trapped in the past. Yeah, that's a classic. And I just want to zero in on the voice function itself for a moment, because it seems like agencies tend to use the brute force method of trying to get better voice phone service by hiring a bunch of people. And then, as you point out, it looks like a big and growing expense because sometimes things take a long time. Is there any way to make just the voice function more efficient, at least so that when you do go to voice, it's not such a cumbersome brute force type of process? Absolutely. So there's a couple tricks or things you can do to help with voice. First of all, in the marketplace now, we have biometric authentication. What does that mean? That means that when you call in, you can be authenticated via your voice. So we don't have to spend a minute asking you for information. It's also is a fraud detection mechanism because, Tom, I may know your information, but if the waves of my voice don't match it, I know that it's not you. So we can take time out of the agent, you know, authenticating who you are. The next thing has to do with the training of the agents. If we can get better knowledge systems for agents, where when you call in, the agent has better knowledge at their fingertips, and there's technology out there that says, the last time you called, Tom, was about a driver's license. And by the way, we sent you a form, and we don't have that back yet. The agent could say, Tom, have you sent in the form that we sent to you? And you can say, yes, here it is. What we can do is we can arm the agent sitting in the cockpit, just like Tom Cruise, the minority report, right? All the information is there. We can arm the agent sitting in the cockpit with who you are, that you're authenticated, what was last interaction, and what do we believe through AI is the next question you're going to ask. And that is how we give better service to citizens. And that's pretty common in commercial. You go to an airline, they knew every flight you've taken for 20 years, or you go to the big A store that we all love and know, and they know everything you've bought and say, do you need this again type of thing. So these are not exotic technologies, are they? They're not exotic technologies. And again, this is the marriage between the software that can track these things to help you and the telephony that can bring the interaction and move between omni-channel. When you have those two pieces in place, what you can have is magic for citizens trying to receive service from the federal government. So instead of putting out requirements for a call center, agencies ought to say, give me a customer experience contact center with great speedy answers and let industry tell you how to do it. You are absolutely right. We talk a lot about digital experience, but we give requirements from five years ago. Let's actually ask to demonstrate digital experience and award on digital experience, and we will receive you know, much better service. Mark Mancher is a principal at Deloitte Consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, and have a great day. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your own phone. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision. 
A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.